Part 6, Book 1 of From the Founding of the City, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mark Harrington. From the Foundation of the City, Volume 1 by Titus Livius. Translated by George Baker. Book 1, Part 6. During the reign of Ancus, a person named Lucumo, of an enterprising spirit, and possessed of great wealth, came and settled at Rome, led principally by ambition, in hopes of attaining higher honors than he could expect at Tarquinii, where also he was considered as an alien. He was the son of Demaratus, a Corinthian, who, having left his native country, in consequence of some intestine commotions, happened to fix his residence at Tarquinii, and marrying there, had two sons. Their names were Lucumo and Arams. Lucumo survived his father, and inherited all his property. Arams died before the father, leaving a wife pregnant. The father did not long survive his son, and not knowing that his daughter-in-law was with child, he died without taking any notice of a grandson in his will, so that the boy, who was born after his grandfather's decease, not being entitled to any share of his property, was called, from the poverty of his situation, Agarius. Lucumo, on the other hand, becoming sole heir, was, by his riches, inspired with elevated notions, and these were much increased by his marriage with Tanaquil, a woman of the highest distinction, who could not endure with patience that the rank of the man whom she had married should remain inferior to that of the family which gave her birth. As the Etrurians looked with contempt on Lucumo, the descendant of a foreign exile, she could not support the indignity, but, disregarding her natural attachment to her country, in comparison with the pleasure of seeing her husband raised to an honorable rank, formed the design of removing from Tarquinii. Rome appeared best suited to her purpose. In a new state, where all nobility was of late date and acquired by merit, she thought there would be room for a man of spirit and industry. She considered that Tatius, a Sabine, had enjoyed the throne, that Numa had been called to the crown from Cures, and that Ancus was of a Sabine family by his father and could show only the single image of Numa to entitle him to nobility. It was not difficult to persuade her husband, who was ambitious of honors, and had no natural attachment to Tarquinii except through his mother, to enter into her designs. Wherefore, carrying their effects along with them, they set out together for Rome. They happened to come through the geniculum. There, as he sat in the chariot with his wife, an eagle, suspending herself on her wings, stooped gently and took off his cap, and after hovering for some time over the chariot with loud screams, replaced it in its proper position on his head, as if she had been sent by some deity to perform that office, and then, flying up into the air, disappeared. It is said that this augury was received with great joy by Tanaquil, who was well skilled in celestial prodigies, as the Etrurians generally are. Embracing her husband, she desired him to cherish hopes of high and magnificent fortune, for that such a bird, from such a quarter of the heaven, the messenger of such a deity, portended no less. That it had exhibited the omen on the most elevated part of the human body, and had lifted up the ornament, 
placed on the head of man in order to replace it on the same park by direction of the gods. Full of these thoughts and expectations, they advanced into the city, and having purchased a house there, they gave out his name as Lucius Tarquinius. The circumstance of his being a stranger and his wealth soon attracted the general notice of the Romans, nor was he wanting, on his part, in aiding the efforts of fortune in his favor. He conciliated the friendship of all, to the utmost of his power, by his courteous address, hospitable entertainments, and generous acts. At last, his character reached even the palace. Having thus procured an introduction there, he soon improved it to such a degree, by his politeness and dexterity in paying his court, that he was admitted to the privileges of familiar friendship, and was consulted in all affairs, both public and private, foreign and domestic, and having acquitted himself to satisfaction in all, was at length, by the king's will, appointed guardian to his children. Ancus reigned twenty-four years, equal in renown, and in the arts, both of peace and war, to any of the former kings. The sons of Ancus had now nearly reached the age of manhood, for which reason Tarquinius the more earnestly pressed that an assembly might be convened as speedily as possible for the election of a king. The proclamation for this purpose being issued, when the time approached, he sent the youths to a distance, on a hunting party. He is said to have afforded the first instance of making way to the crown by paying court to the people, and to have made a speech composed for the purpose of gaining the affections of the populace, telling them that it was no new favor which he solicited. If that were the case, people might indeed be displeased and surprised that he was not the first foreigner, but the third, who aimed at the government of Rome, that Tatius, from being not only a foreigner, but even an enemy, was made king, and Numa, entirely unacquainted with the city, and not proposing himself as a candidate, had been, from their own choice, invited to accept the crown, that he, as soon as he became his own master, had removed to Rome with his wife and all his substance that he had spent the most active part of his life at Rome, that both in civil and military employments he had learned the Roman laws and Roman customs under such a master as ought to be wished for, King Ancus himself, that in duty and obedience to the king he had vied with all men, in kindness towards others, with the king himself. As these assertions were no more than the truth, the people unanimously consented that he should be elected king. And this was the reason that this man, of extraordinary merit in other respects, retained, through the whole course of his reign, the same affectation of popularity which he had used in suing for the crown. For the purpose of strengthening his own authority, as well as of increasing the power of the commonwealth, he added a hundred to the number of the senate, who afterwards were entitled minorum gentium, i.e. of the younger families, and necessarily constituted a party in favor of the king, by whose kindness they had been brought into the senate. His first war was with the Latines, from whom he took the city Apioli by storm, and having brought from thence a greater quantity of booty than had been expected, from a war of so little consequence, he exhibited games in a more expensive and splendid manner than any of the former kings. 
On that occasion, the ground was first marked out for the circus, which is now called Maximus, the principal, in which certain divisions were set apart for the senators and knights, where each were to build seats for themselves, which were called Fori, benches. They remained during the exhibition on these seats, supported by pieces of timber, 12 feet high from the ground. The games consisted of horse races, and the performances of wrestlers collected mostly from Etruria, and from that time continued to be celebrated annually, being termed the Roman and sometimes the Great Games. By the same king, lots for building were assigned to private persons round the forum where porticos and shops were erected. He intended also to have surrounded the city with a stone wall, but a war with the Sabines interrupted his designs. And so suddenly did this break out that the enemy passed the Anio before the Roman troops could march out to meet them and stop their progress. This produced a great alarm at Rome, and, in the first engagement, the victory remained undecided, after great slaughter on both sides. The enemy afterwards, having retired to their camp, and allowed the Romans time to prepare for the war anew, Tarquinius, observing that the principal defect of his army was the want of cavalry, resolved to add other centuries to the Ramnenses, Titienses, and Luceres, instituted by Romulus, and to have them distinguished by his own name. As Romulus, when he first formed this institution, had made use of augury, Accius Nivius, a celebrated augur at that time, insisted that no alteration or addition could be made to it without the sanction of the birds. The king was highly displeased at this, and in ridicule of the art said, as we are told, Come, you diviner, discover by your augury whether what I am now thinking of can be accomplished. The other, having tried the matter according to the rules of Augury, and declared that it could be accomplished. Well, said he, what I was thinking of was whether you could cut a whetstone in two with a razor. Take these, then, and perform what your birds pretend to be practicable. On which, as the story goes, he, without any difficulty, cut the whetstone. There was a statue of Accius with a fillet on his head in the place where the transaction happened, in the comitium, or place of assembly, just on the steps at the left-hand side of the Senate House. It is also said that the whetstone was fixed in the same place, there to remain as a monument of this miracle to posterity. This is certain, that the respect paid to auguries and the office of augurs rose so high that, from that time forth, no business, either of war or peace, was undertaken without consulting the birds. Meetings of the people, embodying of armies, the most important concerns of the state, were postponed when the birds did not allow them. Nor did Tarquinius then make any change in the number of the centuries of the knights, but doubled the number in each, so that there were 1,800 men in the three centuries. The additional men were only distinguished by the appellation of the younger, prefixed to the original names of their centuries, and these at present, for they have been since doubled, are called the six centuries. Having augmented this part of the army, he came to a second engagement with the Sabines, and here, besides that the Roman army had an addition of strength, a stratagem also was made use of, 
which the enemy, with all their vigilance, could not elude. A number of men were sent to throw a great quantity of timber, which lay on the bank of the Anio, into the river after setting it on fire. And the wind being favorable, the blazing timber, most of which was placed on rafts, being driven against the piers where it stuck fast, burned down the bridge. This event not only struck terror into the Sabines during the fight, but prevented their retreating when they betook themselves to flight, so that great numbers who had escaped the enemy perished in the river. And their arms being known at the city, as they floated in the Tiber, gave certain assurance of the victory, sooner almost than any messenger could arrive. In that battle, the cavalry gained extraordinary honor. We are told that being posted on both wings, when the line of their infantry, which formed the center, was obliged to give ground, they made so furious a charge on the flanks of the enemy that they not only checked the Sabine legions, who were vigorously pressing the troops which gave way, but quickly put them to the rout. The Sabines fled precipitately toward the mountains, which but few of them reached. The greatest part, as has been mentioned, were driven by the cavalry into the river. Tarquinius, judging it proper to pursue the enemy closely, before they should recover from their dismay, as soon as he had sent off the booty and prisoners to Rome, and burned the spoils, collected together in a great heap, according to a vow which he had made to Vulcan, proceeded to lead his army forward into the Sabine territories. On the other hand, the Sabines, though they had met with a defeat, and had no reason to hope that they should be able to retrieve it, yet their circumstances not allowing time for deliberation, advanced to meet him, with such troops as they had hastily levied. And being routed a second time, and reduced almost to ruin, they sued for peace. Colatia, and all the land around that city, was taken from the Sabines, and Igarius, son to the king's brother, was left there with a garrison. This was the manner, as I understand, in which the people of Colatia came under the dominion of the Romans, and this was the form of the surrender. The king asked, Are ye ambassadors and deputies on behalf of the people of Colatia to surrender yourselves and the people of Colatia? We are. Are the people of Colatia in their own disposal? They are. Do ye surrender yourselves and the people of Colatia together with your city, lands, waters, boundaries, temples, utensils, all property both sacred and common, under my dominion, and that of the Roman people? We do surrender them. Well, I receive them. The Sabine War being thus concluded, Tarquinius returned in triumph to Rome. Soon after this he made war on the ancient Latines, during which there happened no general engagement. By leading about his army to the several towns, he reduced the whole Latine race to subjection. Corniculum, Old Feculnia, Camaria, Crustumerium, Ameriola, Medulia, Nomentum, all these, which either belonged to the ancient Latines or had revolted to them, were taken, and soon after peace was re-established. He then applied himself to works of peace, with a degree of spirit which even exceeded the efforts that he had made in war, so that the people enjoyed little more rest at home than they had during the campaigns, 
for he set about surrounding with a wall of stone those parts of the city which he had not already fortified, which work had been interrupted at the beginning by the war of the Sabines. The lower parts of the city about the Forum, and the other hollows that lay between the hills, from whence it was difficult to discharge the water by reason of their situation, he drained by means of sewers drawn on a slope down to the Tiber. He also marked out and laid the foundations for enclosing a court round the temple of Jupiter in the capital, which he had vowed during the Sabine War, his mind already presaging the future magnificence of the place. About that time a prodigy was seen in the palace, wonderful, both in the appearance and in the event. They relate that, whilst the boy, whose name was Servius Tullius, lay asleep, his head blazed with fire in the sight of many people, that, by the loud cries of astonishment, occasioned by such a miraculous appearance, the king and queen were alarmed, and that when some of the servants brought water to extinguish it, the queen prevented them, and having quieted the uproar, forbade the boy to be disturbed until he awake of his own accord. In a short time on his awaking, the flame disappeared. Then Tanaquil, calling her husband aside to a private place, said to him, Do you see this boy whom we educate in such a humble style? Be assured that he will hereafter prove a light to dispel a gloom which will lie heavy on our affairs, and will be the support of our palace in distress. Let us, therefore, with every degree of attention that we can bestow, nourish this plant, which is, hereafter, to become the greatest ornament to our family and our state. From that time they treated the boy as if he were their own child, and had him instructed in all those liberal arts by which the mind is qualified to support high rank with dignity. That is easily brought to pass, which is pleasing to the gods. The youth proved to be of a disposition truly royal, so that when Tarquinius came to look for a son-in-law, there was not one among the Roman youth who could be set in competition with him in any kind of merit and to him Tarquinius betrothed his daughter. This extraordinary honor conferred on him, whatever might be the reason for it, will not let us believe that he was born of a slave, and had himself been a slave in his childhood. I am rather inclined to be of their opinion, who say that, when Corniculum was taken, the wife of Servius Tullius, the principal man in that city, being pregnant when her husband was slain, and being known among the rest of the prisoners, and, on account of her high rank, exempted from servitude by the Roman queen, was delivered of a son at Rome in the house of Tarquinius Priscus, that, in consequence of such kind treatment, an intimacy grew between the ladies, and that the boy, also being brought up in the house from his infancy, was highly beloved and respected and that the circumstance of his mother having fallen into the enemy's hands on the taking of her native city gave rise to the opinion of his being born of a slave. About the thirty-eighth year of the reign of Tarquinius, Servius Tullius stood in the highest degree of estimation, not only with the king, but with the senate and the commons. At this time the two sons of Ancus, although they had before this always considered it as the highest indignity that they should be expelled from the throne of their father by the perfidy of their guardian 
and that the sovereignty of Rome should be enjoyed by a stranger whose family, so far from being natives of the city, were not even natives of Italy, yet now felt their indignation rise to a higher pitch of violence at the probability that the crown was not to revert to them even after Tarquinius, but was to continue to sink one step after another until it fell on the head of a slave so that within the space of a little more than a hundred years from the time when romulus descended from a deity and himself a deity had during his abode on earth held the government a slave the son of a slave should now get possession of it they looked on it as a disgrace to the roman name in general and particularly to their own house if while there was male issue of king ancus surviving the government of rome should be prostituted not only to strangers but to slaves they determined therefore to prevent this dishonor by the sword but resentment for the injury which they had suffered stimulated them strongly to attack tarquinius himself rather than servius and also the consideration that the king if he survived would be able to take severer vengeance for any murder committed than a private citizen could and that besides were servius put to death it was to be expected that whatever other son-in-law he might choose would be made heir of the kingdom for these reasons they formed a plot against the king himself for the execution of which two of the most undaunted of the shepherds were chosen who armed with the iron tools of husbandmen which they were used to carry pretended a quarrel in the porch of the palace and attracted by their outrageous behavior the attention of all the king's attendants then both appealing to the king and their clamor having reached the palace they were called in and brought before him at first they both bawled aloud and each furiously abused the other until being rebuked by a lictor and ordered to speak in their turns they desisted from railing then as they had concerted one began to explain the affair and while the king attentive to him was turned quite to that side the other raising up his axe struck it into his head and leaving the weapon in the wound they both rushed out of the house End of Book 1, Part 6